I'm on. Hey, welcome everybody who are here in the church studio and those of you who tune in uh, to watch us and make this your home church. Uh, glad you're with us. As you know, we uh, begin with a word of prayer. We sing the word of God, passages of scripture uh, set to music, one set of passages. And then we come back and uh, we sit in silence after that for you to have your time to commune with God and, uh, and talk and, and open your heart, whatever you do. And then we come back and we go verse by verse. Typically, this is the first non-verse by verse study in 100 weeks because today, last week, we finished the book of Revelation and this is the wrap up and uh, we're calling it now that it's all over and I'm just going to give some thoughts and then we'll open up to a Q&A, which we always do, comments that people want to make. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we seek and love you and need you in our lives. We ask that your spirit will be with us in abundance. We're grateful you loved us so much. You sent your only begotten son to give his life. We look to him in faith, knowing that in faith you uh, find us justified and sanctified and that it is by that faith in your son and his finished work that we are reconciled to you. We pray that we will relate to you in spirit and in truth, that we won't relate to you through religion, but that we will relate to you through relationship that all of us are entitled to, that you want us to have because of your spirit, because of what Jesus has done. We pray that uh, you will help our discussion today, that whatever is true will be remembered, the things that I say that are wrong will be forgotten, and uh, that we can just move forward as people who seek to know you better in this life. Be with those who want to be here who can't. Be with those who can be here but don't want to be. Uh, that they will find a place to go and seek you out and know you better. We pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And we know. Also, but later. 
Okay, uh, we started, as you know, back in Revelation almost two years ago, and you and I, we had a lot of things that needed clarification with that very heavy book, and we've talked about those, and now that we've gone through it, literally verse by verse, we've checked the Greek, we've checked the historical content, we've looked at other versions of all the passages We've uh, looked at the futurist view as compared to the historicist, as compared to the idealist. In many, pla many places we did that, not all of them. And then we looked at the preterist view and the hyper-preterist and the full preterist and the biblical preterist. And I have come to see some things that weren't necessarily addressed during our two-year sojourn through the book of Revelation that have become more apparent to me and I thought that we would wrap up having done it so we can get back to our verse by verse uh, the week after next. In fact, let me do a quick short plug on the board. It says next week from 12 noon to 2 p.m. And by the way, there's no meet next week uh, for us. Uh, we're going to have our heart in the parking lot. We used to do heart in the park. Now we're doing a heart in the parking lot. And that's open water baptism. We'll have that cow trough out there for people who want to be baptized and every year we see a number of people who show up and and they want to be baptized many times they don't even come to campus they want someone in their family to baptize them they want to renew they want to whatever reason you want to be baptized for jesus come and do that in whatever way you see fit we're here to help and support you hot dogs will be here and and chips and wendy's famous baked beans and things like that and it's free to you, and we just hope you'll come fellowship with us, and so that's what we're all about. So, uh, but as we've gone through um, this book, it's sort of like if you get uh, accepted to do, go to like maybe a college and for a two-year program, and it's focused on uh, fixing water heaters, and the two-year program, you go and you enter it. But during the time you're studying how to fix water heaters, you're living in a place that is full of all kinds of unique experiences that at the end of the two years you go home and your family says well what did you learn tell us all about the water heaters and you can say well this is what i think water heaters are about and et cetera. but the real experience for me was living in this apartment and learning this and these friends and all this other things that happen and that's kind of i have learned a lot through revelation but 
there's been some extra things that have come with our study that have opened me up and I want to share them with you. The first of all is my present, current, and probably forever will be view of the book of Revelation. The nature of the relationship with God and Christ and man is much clearer as a result of our study of this book. The relationship of first fruits and the firstborn of the church versus everyone afterwards has become much more apparent to me. The identity of the Father and the Son has been made radically clear through our study of Revelation. And finally, the purpose and place of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. We'll, we'll, brief, we'll briefly discuss that and what it looks like in summary. So, and then the week after next, we'll open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and start in on our verse-by-verse verse of that book. Um, so today, I'm going to respond to even questions that have been asked of me as we've gone through, and then... Um, and then talk about it. So number one, has my opinion of the book of Revelation changed? I talked about that along the way, but uh, do I think it has a place in the New Testament? When we started off, Martin Luther and other scholars have along the way said, this book might not even belong in there. And uh, he included it in his Antilegomania books, which Antilegomania books, which means they don't necessarily belong in the Bible. Uh, my, my view has dramatically changed. I wasn't sure of its purpose in place because the way it had been taught to me in the past didn't ever sit in my mind right. I just couldn't, what's, what's the dragon? When's this antichrist coming? This beast and these calamities and what's the, so it didn't really sync with me better, but, um, and then with people saying it doesn't belong in our New Testament, I, I always wondered. So add in the fact that the majority of pastors avoid teaching this book. They might, if they do teach it, it will be on a Wednesday night study and it will be cursory and kind of just, these are the general things it talks about. So to do the verse by verse helped me as a pastor, even though I was afraid to do it, helped me to understand uh, how wrong I was about my view of the book to begin with. I've learned a number of things relative, which we're going to touch on now. First, I learned that it is what a, a Jewish book, the book of Revelation, is. It is truly a Hebrew book written in Hebrew idiom and referencing Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, and prophecies that were given through them. And it speaks referencing Hebrew things beginning to end. And if that is not part and parcel of your natural language, reading it as a Gentile 2,000 years after it was written, you're going to come up with things that are not going to be beneficial to your understanding if you don't consult the Hebrew view of the world and the scriptures they have and the way they speak. So this includes uh, the use in the book of Revelation of the books of Genesis, of course, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and Isaiah, and Job, and Malachi, and Psalms, and of course Ezekiel, and, and Jeremiah, and others I've failed to mention. Uh, Daniel, they, the writer uh, John, he and the angels reporting 
the visions are pulling constantly from those sources. And as we came to them in our study, we pulled from them to try to tie them in of where they came from from beginning. So you have to have some sort of knowledge of what it means to have been a Jew and what it means to be a Jew relative to their scripture to start to get an idea of what Revelation is talking about. If you are simply a New Testament Christian that reads the New Testament, understands the Jesus story, and you read Revelation at the end, I, I just think it has led to a, a large problem with interpretation over the years. Now, there are some very good Greek, I mean, uh, Hebrew scholars who understand the Hebrew and teach Revelation differently than I do, but nevertheless, they'll be fairly consistent uh, with its contents. Uh, additionally, I learned that the way a Jew writes and communicates is on display in Revelation. And the, if we miss that, then our information can really get confounded, which I sort of touched on. That being said, I've also learned firsthand what a volatile and disruptive divisionary book this can be. And I've learned firsthand how it can be manipulated by men and women, and you can pull from passages, extract it out of the Hebrew setting, out of the context of what it was talking about, and apply it to people here and now, and start using it as things to threaten people with the end is coming and all this futuristic view. And so uh, I think that's unfortunate. The very nature of this divisionary element of the book tells me that it has to be approached with some tremendous amount of leeway and love between each other. That hopefully as we walk away from it for good now, that when someone comes up and says, Jesus is coming back, the signs are here, read it in Revelation that we don't respond with, you are crazy. Do you understand what was, this was being written to and why? That we can just say, eh, that's one interpretation, you know. And it hasn't caused us to become haughty or proud in our view. We can just say, I understand the book a little bit differently. Maybe I'm wrong. And, and so, because it, it's not an easy book. It is a book that God has purposely allowed to be difficult. And so when there are difficult things in our lives to understand, and they are so difficult that we don't agree on them, then the only solution we have as followers of Christ is to love people in the disagreement. Not to fight with people in the disagreement, but to love them. So again, if God allows something to be so difficult in comprehension, to me, our response is not grit down and find out what it means and then put it on everybody. Our response is humility, all right? So, um, I also see how the book uh, definitely appeals to people who uh, have a real strong sense of what we might call magical realism, where they uh, combine real world events with myth and imagery and fables, and it allows this, this type of personality to really thrive in the book of Revelation. And because of that, it also allows for a tremendous amount of chicanery and manipulation by uh, cult leaders. Uh, of course, Jim Jones was big when you read the book Raven on Revelation. Of course, um, David Koresh would spend hours 
describing Revelation and how it was describing. And even, like we said at the beginning, the Beatles, according to Charles Manson, was quoting Revelation. And that the Beatles were the scorpions with the tails and, and the haircuts like a helmet and, and all those interpretations. So for me, it's impossible to read or study the book as literal. I say that today. I don't think you can literally apply it because of the Hebraisms in it. But I do think there are, paradoxically, some places where it must be taken literally. And the rub is, when do you go literal and when do you go figurative? And that makes the book difficult. Because, like, a futurist is typically all literal. And so they make the whole thing literal. And versus an idealist is the whole thing is figurative. And those two camps, of course, can't agree. So I think somewhere in the, in the mix there are times for literalism and times for um, symbolism. And also I've been able to see and read firsthand how secular history supports the imagery. I can't be more emphatic on this point. Secular history supports the language and tales of Revelation more than I could have possibly believed. That we have people who are non-Christian historians writing about events that were happening in Judea in that day and point for point are describing what John was told would happen in Revelation. That was the most revelatory thing that I experienced that I don't think we could take and pay uh, Cassio Dio or Suetonius or Tacitus or Josephus enough money to write histories that include the contents of what's prophesied in the book of Revelation. And yet we showed out of the 100 days, probably 90 of those days showed where history completely supported what Revelation was saying and what was actually happening in that day even to the point of a non-Christian historian talking about uh, chariots of angels in the clouds and things like that. So radical that I don't see it as having, not having application to that day and age. So um, the full biblical preterist model goes much further uh, also in my mind to support biblical inerrancy where um, today, presently, and I know you guys all know this, that if you're able to sit down with a futurist, idealist, or historicist believer in Revelation, and you're able to ask them point blank five simple questions out of the book of, uh, out of the New Testament. For instance, when Jesus said, within a generation I'm coming back, what did he mean? All of those are going to have to twist his words somehow. They are not going to be able to say he meant what he said. It, when you say, when Jesus said, some of you who are standing here will see me return in the clouds. What does that mean, pastor, who has this historicist or idealist or, or a futurist view? They have to say it didn't mean what he said. I believe the Bible means what it says. And so to me, the historicist preterist view is the greatest support for uh, biblical inerrancy that there is. And the further away you get from the historicist preterist view of fulfillment, the more you have to say you really can't trust what the Bible says. 
when the apostles throughout their ministries are encouraging through the Greek language that he's coming, he's coming quickly, the time is at hand, it's upon us in the Greek where there is no room for error in that Greek language. The apostles say this in their writings and you ask somebody who supports a different eschatological position, they have to say and they have to ultimately conclude with great embarrassment or great boldness, the apostles were wrong. If the apostles were wrong, I am not going to believe the Bible at all. But I will maintain they were right. Again, the Bible has inerrancy toward us and that what the apostles said they meant and it happened. That is what I have concluded through the study of Revelation. Uh, to my surprise, I also found myself drawn deeper into certain theological positions, when I, which I want to share with you now. And um, these are positions that I sort of thought existed before the study of Revelation, believed even, taught even existed. But now that we have finished our study of it, I now am more certain from having studied the book than ever of these theological positions. So let me spend some time just talking about those and, I'm, and let me go to the board to help. Are you ready for this, Delaney? Okay. One theological position that I've come to understand is the model between the uh, Old Testament and the nation of Israel and what God has done through the New Testament to bring about the New Age, okay? In the Old Testament, we have God create Adam and he created Eve, his wife, right? And um, then we have through them the fall where the world and all the creation fell into sin because they chose that right? And that put the Jews into, when they wrote, what is called the present age. Dang it. In other words, when uh, Isaiah wrote, he was writing that they were in the present age and that they were waiting for the age to come. So from Adam and Eve down to a certain point in time, the Jews believe this age to end and another age to come. So since the fall, the Jews would write that they were in the present age. And from Adam and Eve and their present age came the children of Israel or the nation of Israel. This was the family that God chose to be his. They were his covenant people. And he would be their God and they would be his people. And he gave them law, a law of Moses. And he said, as you obey this law, I will bless you. And as you disobey this law, I will curse you. And I promise you certain things. And all of this was then centered around a capital, which ultimately became Jerusalem, the city of peace. And this, this was the hope, the city of David. And this was the present age. And from all this, God, he established some things that that nation, his people. Now remember, there were people outside of that nation. 
There were other groups. God said to uh, Ishmael, was it Ishmael? Esau, wait. Yeah, he said to Ishmael, I will make you a great nation. He had other nations. He had other peoples. He had other groups. But they were not, quote unquote, his people. His people that he was working through for what? To bring about the salvation of man to the world was this group right here specifically. Now why he chose them is up to debate. Some people say it's not fair that he was preferential to them. Other people say they were so horrible he chose them because they would do what he wanted them to do in horrible ways. We don't know why he chose them. But out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, 12 tribes, come the children of Israel. And what does scripture tell us that that nation provided us, the covenant people under the law? It says that, well, one, it provided us the law. Not us, Gentiles, but it provided them the law of God. And they had to obey that law or be cursed. It provided them prophets who wrote and spoke and prophesied for this people on God's behalf. It gave them oracles or what we would call the scripture, the Old Testament. They were given the oracles through the prophets and they wrote those oracles all prophesying of the other thing that, that this nation gave us, the Messiah. And this nation in total gave us material religion. And this is what all of that former covenant was about. The material approach, meaning the fleshly approach to God. That I can, through my righteousness and obeying the law and following the prophets and studying God's word, be prepared for the Messiah who will come and he'll reign on this earth as our Messiah and we will overcome the Roman armies, we'll overcome everything, we will be part of his material church and we're going to be fine and dandy and good, right? He also, last of all, gave, through this nation, by the way, apostles. So after he gives the Messiah, he gives them actual 12 apostles who were all of the nation of Israel. And they had a job to do. To tell the whole nation of Israel that was around at that time in Judea and Israel and in the surrounding areas that this Messiah had come. And that he had given his life for them. Remember Jesus said, I came to bring this good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only. Go out, my apostles, and share with them. And he said another line that other eschatologists can't answer. He said, but I tell you, you apostles, this is quoting him, not verbatim. You're going to go to every, you, you won't get to every city in Israel before I come back. That's what is said in scripture. Was he right or was he wrong? He was right. So, we have a problem though. It was a problem God knew. But this nation, they were expecting this material Messiah to provide them with a material religion that would continue on. But their Messiah was a Messiah that worked in the Spirit. He came baptizing in spirit and in truth. And they missed that. They wanted him to sit on a throne in the city of David and they wanted him to rule over the material world. And when Jesus, who was born of suspect circumstances, a carpenter who didn't have the schooling they thought he should have, who was a Galilean and spoke a different dialect, 
when he comes along and he has no place to rest his head, the leaders of the nation of Israel said, that's not our Messiah. And as they were, they did something. They killed him. They put the Messiah to death. This was all part of the plan, of course. This may be partly why God chose the nation of Israel. Now remember, the kingdom that I've just talked about worked on law, his law. Outside the nation of Israel, remember, there were other camps. There were other people. God was aware of them. He told uh, Ishmael, I'll make you a great nation, but you're just not my people yet. Just remember that. So we have all that happening with the nation of Israel all the way up to Jesus. He's put to death. And then the guy does something that even his apostles don't recognize are gonna, is going to happen. He resurrects. And he rises from the grave three days later and he becomes the king. He, that's when God says, according to Paul, this day I have begotten you. When he rose from the grave, proving that everything he said was legitimate and he was truly the king. Now, he is called in scripture the second what? Adam. He's called the second Adam. Why? The first Adam introduced death into a fallen world. Jesus, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, introduces life. This is a brand new, like my friend Dave said, this is good news. This is good news. Apostles, go out to the nation of Israel remaining and share with him the life that has come. Let them know that if they look to him, they will be saved. Saved from what? saved from the coming destruction that the rest of the house of Israel is going to experience within a generation that's coming quickly upon them. So go out and do that. Does the second Adam have a wife? Adam had a wife. Her name was Eve. Who's the second Adam's wife? Ah, big question. She's also known as his bride. It is the first church that the gates of hell would not prevail against. It is his bride that he was coming to collect. He was coming back to get her after she passed through tribulation. And, that, and, 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 and she will become the new Jerusalem, which Paul calls our mother. Mother of what? Mother of the, the new church, the new age. Remember, we're still in the former age. Okay? So, from... Jesus' bride, and from the second Adam, comes not the nation of Israel, comes not the children of Israel, but comes the body of Christ, which is made of who? Believers. Us. We were not part of this first church. We were not. They were his bride. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But we are believers now and we have been believers and every believer since all of it's been taken care of since 70 AD who come to Christ through faith and walk with Christ in love. They are part of the bride and, and the second Adam's body. And that is going to be a kingdom that never ends. Kingdom is eternal. 
and Jesus will reign over this kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever, and people will continue to flock to it. Just remember that. So, all of this were, uh, was, was built on, this, the former uh, age was built on law. This age is built on love. And when we mistake those two, and we think that we have to, in this age, go by law, we lose our ability to love, as Christians need to, as Christians are commanded to, actually. So, remember that I said when describing the nation of Israel and how God chose them and elected them, but he had others? Well, this leads us to another point that I want to get to, and that is that what God has done now in the victory of his son. So I'm going sh- to shift away from the board, Wendy, and I'm going to go to the next thing I've learned through the study of Revelation. Again, our only topical, sorry for the topical, the first principle is God the Father gives all things through Jesus Christ. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, ready, and comes down from the Father of lights. Every good gift. In whom is no variableness, neither shadow or turning. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from God above. And the ultimate gift he gave, remember God gave his only begotten son, it comes from the Father to us. Second, Jesus was then, after he walked through the mortal life, and he took upon himself uh, all temptation, he took upon himself the sin of the world, he died and resurrected, Jesus himself is given everything, uh, everything is given to him by his Father. He's the Father who gives every good and perfect gift, that's from above, and that Father gives his only human Son everything. Some scriptures. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You have a question about that? Go to Scripture. Let me give you another one. Matthew 11.27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, Jesus said. John 5.26, for the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The Father has given it to the Son. Uh, John 5.36, I have greater witness than that of John, but the works which my Father has given me to finish the same works I do. John 6.39, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all which he has given me. So even the Father was given him in that time. In that time, when he was walking the earth, the Father had given him apostles and others to believe. That was coming from the Father to him before his resurrection. John 6, 65. Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Still the Father is giving all these things to the Son. John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he went to God. Again, reiterated, all things given to Jesus by the Father. John 17, 11, Jesus says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Give through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. Talking about his apostles right there. 
That was the context of that. We read that today and think it's talking about us. It's talking about those apostles that God had given him to do what? To establish this kingdom that was coming, not in the present age that the Jews uh, wrote about, but the second age they wrote about, which was the age to come. Jesus and his apostles off the foundation of prophets and apostles is building a foundation. He has his bride that is launching this church at the gates of hell. Cannot, and he is starting to wrap this whole thing up that we read about in the Old and New Testament. John 17, 24, Father, I will that they also which thou hast given me. And then finally, John 18, 11, Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Throughout his life, Jesus is constantly referring to receiving things of his Father. Why? Because his Father is the giver of all gifts, as we read. That's the setting, okay? Post-resurrection now. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, fullness of God in him, but tempted in all things. God cannot be tempted. The man is going through life for us. He gives his life up. He's, he's sacrificed. He's resurrected. And he has overcome everything. Everything. The Father, while he walked on earth, had given him everything. Now we have Jesus post-resurrection. Acts 2.36 Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified. What does is, what is Peter say God has made him? Both Lord and Christ. That's what God has made his son. Both Lord and Christ. That's, that's huge. Hebrews 10.12 But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. This man sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies are made his footstool. Romans 14.9 For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be what of both living and the dead? That he might be Lord of both living and the dead. God has made him Lord, Savior, Christ over all things. God, the giver of gifts. These scriptures are proving it. We don't see the scriptures saying, and I'm not saying Christ wasn't fully God in the flesh, but it doesn't say that, that God made the man flesh God. It said God made the man in the flesh Lord, Savior, Christ. I've just read three passages. Let me read more. Hebrews 12.1. God in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He, gave, he made him an heir. Jesus, the man of Nazareth, was made an heir after overcoming everything on our behalf. Hebrews 2.8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. That's what it says. Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels said to uh, him at any time, sit on my right hand till I make uh, enemies thy footstool. And listen to what Daniel said. Listen to this closely. Daniel, Daniel 7.3 says, And I saw in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man with clouds in the heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Daniel saw one like the Son of Man, who is that, being brought to the Ancient of Days. That is, that is really interesting. And he goes on, And there was given him, the Son of Man, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. 
and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. That's what we're talking about now. That's what's been going on since 70 AD. His kingdom, all things in his hand. The former age is over. We've entered into the new age. At the wrapping up of that former age, what the Jews called their present age, at the destruction of Jerusalem, we enter in to the new heaven, the new earth, the, the new Jerusalem, not a brick and mortar, not the former city of David. We have no relationship to that. That thing's just a, a city with great history. We are now spiritual because the Messiah was a spiritual Messiah, okay? And now we enter into these passages that speak to this age for us and that tell us what it looks like. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 23. You know them, but I got to read them. Talking about the resurrection, Paul says, but every man in his own order. When I say man, I mean men or women, children, every person. Christ, the first fruits, first time I'm mentioning that word. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Okay, so we have Christ resurrecting. He's the first fruits of the grave. And then Paul says, and you want to know who's going to be resurrected next? Those who are resurrected at his coming, which we have proven through scripture, Jesus and the apostles have promised was happening before and in conjunction with the destruction of that former age. Then it says, then comes the end of what? The world? No. The end of that age. Then comes the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Jesus has delivered the kingdom to God. Even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. Do you see what Jesus has done for us? He's not only overcome the grave. He's not only come over sin. He's not only overcome temptation. He's not only overcome the fear of giving his life. He has overcome everything and he hands this to his father, it says there. He hands the kingdom to his father. For he must reign, talking about Jesus, till he has put all enemies under his feet. That would happen at the final destruction of the former age. The last enemy that, be shall, that shall be destroyed is death. Never talking about physical death there. We're talking about spiritual death there. Because physical death reigns in this world. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it's, it's obvious that he's accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be dis, uh, subdued to him, then, here's the passage that always got me from the beginning, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Do you see what God has done through his son? He has through his son become all in all to a world that fell into sin. That is what he has done. And I will say hallelujah. I will agree with, agree with Patrick. It is a praise the Lord because that's what he's done. We think of it in all these other terms, but it's so apparent right there. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Read with me what it says in Ephesians. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. There we see God is giving us the spiritual blessings in Christ. 
right? According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. I can talk to you about this forever. I'm not going to touch on this part. To the praise and glory of his grace wherein we... We, he made us accepted and beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Verse 10, then in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. All things in Christ. Ready? Both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. This is total victory that God had through the victory of his son. Read Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. God has given this to him and given him a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Ready? Of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. He has everything that, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. Not that Jesus is God. We know he was God with us. But that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. God the Father. It's clear throughout Scripture. You strip out the creeds that came through men later, and this stuff is lost. But it's clear as day through biblical Scripture what God was doing, right? In describing the new age, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all of this that entered in after the destruction of the old, after his after he returned to the house of Israel and destroyed a million plus Jews. We've read about it. This is what Revelation is talking to, the seven churches in Asia Minor in that day. After all of that, after the dust settled, when it's all done, been shaken down, we enter into the age to come, the Jews thought of it as. We enter into the age where my friend Dave earlier said, we had the good news, now we have the great news. And I, I want to change that. I love that way he said it. We now have the great news. This is where he has had the victory. We're not having to have the victories. The victory has been had by Christ Jesus on behalf of his father. And the father does not want, this is in the Greek, it's his imperative will, will not have that any should perish. That's his imperative will that none would perish. That's not a permissive will that he hopes it's that way. In the Greek, that is the will of God the Father, that none should perish. That's great news. The good news is, hey, believe on Jesus who came as our Messiah and you won't be destroyed at the end of the age by the incoming Roman armies. If you listen to us, the apostles are saying, you're gonna be saved and you'll be part of that bride that Jesus comes and takes and is what he establishes an entire kingdom on. That's good news, you guys. I mean, it's really good. Believe. The great news is we don't even have to worry about that stuff. 
we now can freely walk in faith and love toward all people, trusting that God is doing his work in them, and it's not incumbent upon us to save the world. That has been done away. Listen to what it says in the Hall of Fame of Faith, which is Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews goes through and he tells this person lived by faith, that person lived by faith, Rahab the harlot lived by faith. They all lived by faith and they never even saw anything that was uh, promised to them. They never came into the promised land. They didn't have anything fulfilled. They were sawn asunder and torn to pieces and they still walked looking for that city to come, which is the new Jerusalem, by the way, hoping to be part of that city. All right. After chapter 11 of Hebrews, we read at chapter 12. Wherefore, sorry, almost done. Not really. (laughs) Seeing we also are surrounded about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that does easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This is to them then, you guys. Let us run the race before the end of this generation comes. Run the race that is set before you. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Think about Jesus, what he did. Lest you be wearied and faint in your minds, yet having not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son that he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is of whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all of you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we've had father of our fleshes, flesh was corrected us and we gave them reverence shall not we be more rather in subjection into the father of spirits and live the writer is telling them i'm challenging you the end of this age is coming don't let go of the race pursue it let the chastening of the lord move you to stronger walk not a lesser walk and he goes on and he says listen lift up the hands that hang down make straight the paths of your feet Follow peace with all men, it says. Follow peace with all men and holiness, which no man can see uh, the Lord without looking diligently. And he goes on to talk. And then he comes to those passages that apply to us. And he says, because they were in a transition period, remember? It was the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's talking now. This is what we came from. Now he's going to start talking about what is there for them. He says, You won't come to a mountain like Moses was, where there was lightning and terror, and if if an ox touched that mountain, it would fall over dead. That was the dispensation under the law. We haven't come to that, where it burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet. It was so terrifying that even Moses said, I exceedingly quake at this dispensation we're in. But, he says at verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, Okay, Mount Sinai, Zion. Ready? And unto the city of the living God. 
Suddenly we're in a city of the living God now. That, is, that we're all brought into by, by, uh, by Jesus. The heavenly Jerusalem, he says. The heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn. Remember, we are not part of that church of the firstborn. We are part of the offspring of that bride and the second Adam. But the church of the firstborn were taken up by him. So we come into that church of the firstborn written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of all and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So we read in Revelation that the father will be there and Jesus face will be the shining light there. And there will be no uh, sun or moon there because Jesus will be the light. We come into this new uh, and so, uh, kingdom and so come to him. And he says, and his, his voice then shook the earth but now he says, one more time, the writer of Hebrews tells these guys then, one more time God says, I'm not going to shake the earth only, but I'm going to shake heaven too. That's, why, that's where we get the, the foundation of this new Jerusalem, which is in heaven. And when he says he's going to remove things that are shaken, that he means the things that are made, so that the only thing that, cannot re, that can remain are things that are unshakable. That is his kingdom. It's an unshakable kingdom of great news. It's not the former kingdom when we're still fearing. It's not the kingdom of just good news. It's not a kingdom under the law. It's not a kingdom as, as we're still looking to the nation of Israel. We are all in this great news kingdom. And that is why, and I'm not using this as scripture or anything that I think can be validated, but that is why these thousands and thousands and thousands of near-death experiences where people are out for 7, 10, 15, 20 minutes long, people of all shapes and walk and sizes die and they're going to places of light. And many of them say, and there was a city there that my heart said, I've got to get to that city. I've got to get to that place. These are people who don't know the scripture. They don't know what a new Jerusalem is. They come out of it. They say, I saw God. I, I, I met them. It was pure love. This is the victory. This is the great news, you know? So when we step back and we tell the mother of a son who wasn't a Christian that when he killed himself, he went to hell, we are stupid. We aren't even reading what the scripture says about the great news. We are taking stuff that was written to them about that age. It's as clear as day and we are inputting it upon people. And God looks like this horrible, maniacal monster when in fact God has had the victory over everything. Everything through his son. Everything through his son. There are people who will dwell in that city, yes, because they were people of faith and people who loved. And there will be people who dwell outside of that city who can't approach it. And there will be people who are overcome. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in the earth, in the heaven and below the earth that he is Lord. And no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. This is a total victory of great news given to us. So there's no reason for us to walk about and judge somebody and meet drink, dress, lifestyle, failures, successes, any of this from the Christian stance. What we have is a victory that has come through the book of Revelation, as described in Revelation 21 through 22, 5. It's the most glorious 
thing imaginable. And people will still reap what they have sown. It's not that people who have been evil in their life are getting a pass, but God has had the victory over their life and they will be dealt with him in love. But the victory has been had and the former stuff of the old economia, the economy, the oikonomia is done. I've also seen application as I've touched on to first fruits and to the church of the firstborn in our study of Revelation. At one time I talked on it, I'm gonna be really, really quick, but prior to the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem through Christ, there was a, a firstborn, first um, fruits introduced through the house of Israel, the children of Israel, and brought all the way through down to Revelation. They are the bride of Christ of the new Jerusalem above. Believers today are not church of the firstborn. We are not the first fruits. To say that would be like saying that the apostles were the first fruits of a tree and then 2,000 years later, we're also first fruits of the tree. That's not possible. The tree has borne 2,000 years of fruit. We are the after fruit that comes, which is good, but it is not what God calls his first fruit. So let me explain to you. It started with crops in the house of Israel. And remember, it says in Leviticus that uh, when you come into a land which I will give you, you shall reap the harvest thereof, and you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. It started with the Old Testament giving us a type and symbol, an example. And we know that it was in through uh, these fruit, olives do and everything else. Then it were sons. Within the house of Israel, the idea of first fruits is introduced through sons. Exodus 13, 12. Thou shalt set apart the Lord all that open the matrix. That's the womb of a woman. And every firstling that comes of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be the Lord's. So then when it came to the, the child that opens a woman's womb first, of beast or, or man, the males would be the first fruits of the womb. They were the Lord's. It comes to a nation, Romans eleven sixteen. For if the first fruit be holy, the Jews, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. The nation of Israel became a first fruit nation. We of the Gentiles are not first fruit nations when it comes to the house of Israel. Of the resurrection, what are the first fruits? But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. That's of all of us. We all die. That's what sleep means there. He's the first fruits. But every man after his own order, Christ the first fruits. Remember, I just read it. Then we have the first fruits of believers. Did you know that? That in the body, there are a first fruit group of believers. It's not us. That's the point I'm trying to make to you. In Romans 8, 23, it says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, waiting upon adoption to it, the redemption of our body. The 144,000 in the book of Revelation. It says, these are they which were not defiled by women, they are virgins. They are which fall off the land whatsoever he goeth. They are redeemed from among the men, being the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. Now we have the first fruits, the 144,000 taken at the age of Revelation, that are the first fruits of, the, of, the, of God 
and the Lamb, His Son. Now we have the first fruits of the Christian faith, right? And then the apostolic church. Listen to what James 1.18 says. Of his own will begat us with the word of truth. Ready for this? That we, the apostolic church, the bride of Christ, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits. That's all the New Testament church was. They were his beautiful bride. They were uh, the, uh, the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against. They were the first fruits of the church. And that is what Jesus, the second Adam, and his bride, they were the marriage. And on that foundation were established a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem that is being filled now forevermore by the product of what those people established through their blood and sacrifice in writing the word and giving their lives in martyrdom and through the atonement of Christ. They have set that up. Now, firstborn, let's talk about that. In the Old Testament, the firstborn sons enjoyed special privileges. Okay, I can give you seven verses right now from the Old Testament. Firstborn sons had special privileges. Does the first fruits and the firstborn of the church have special privileges? They do. They actually are in uh, the, the, the New Jerusalem on high and have been forever enjoying whatever privileges those are. Okay? It was called their birthright. And the firstborn of the poor signifies the most miserable of the poor in Isaiah. The church of the firstborn signifies the redeemed. Um, the redemption of the firstborn. The firstborn male of every animal was given up to the priest for sacrifice. Did you know that? The firstborn male of every clean animal was given up to the priest to be sacrificed. That's what the early church did for us. They sacrificed themselves in order to be the bride, the firstborn, the firstfruits taken up to establish the church. Jesus, of course, is the firstborn. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And then, of course, she knew that she had not brought, she knew not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and she called his name Jesus. There's a predestination of the firstborn. Did you know that? When we read about predestination in the scripture, everybody wants to take predestination and assign it to us today. Well, they were predestined, but they weren't. They were predestined, but they weren't. You know, that's what the Calvinist does. Predestination was for the church at that time, that God had predestined them. Listen to what it says in Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He established in that day and age a firstborn group that would be his bride, that would be the first fruits, and they would be the ones who introduced the rest of the world, this kingdom that would roll forth spiritually. So when Calvinists read, because it's in the Bible, about being predestined, and they try to assign it to themselves, it's ridiculous. Its context is in that day and age for God to bring about his will through what he was doing there. Colossians 1.15 says, who is Christ is the image of God, the firstborn of every creature. Jesus is also called the firstborn of the dead. And then the apostolic church. Hebrews 12.23, that we would, they would come to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, that were written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's another thing. What, how are we doing on time? Okay, so 
That's something else that became very apparent to me through our study of Revelation. That that was certainly the establishment of his kingdom. The former age destroyed. The new age firmly established by first fruits, firstborn, the kingdom. Everything in place now for the good news to become the great news. And that is what we read about uh, fulfilled. Uh, Finally, I want to read, I think about finally, that the book of Revelation clearly points out the relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are introduced to one Lord God, Lord God, Lord God in the book of Revelation. In in other words, we start off in, in the Old Testament and we read Lord God 513 times. Lord God, Lord God. We come to the New Testament, we read about Lord God three or four times, and then we read about it seven or eight more times in the book of Revelation. We're reintroduced to this concept of Lord God. Okay? So, all through the Old Testament, we read that title. To me, this seems to say that God has always been God, but he has not always been Lord God to people. They were not accepting him as their Lord. They were going to idolatry. They were turning from him as their Lord. They said he's our God, but he's not our Lord of our life. And so Jesus comes as the Lord and Savior. And in the book of Revelation, God is called then the Lord God of all. Right at the end of all the scripture, he's recalled Lord God again. More times in the book of Revelation than anywhere else in the whole New Testament combined. I think that's God doing something through the man Jesus with him fully being in him. So in Luke uh, 132, and he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, talking about Jesus, and the Lord God shall give unto him a throne of his father David. Lord God, Old Testament, giving it to this son born of a woman. Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There seems to be an overflow there of God now visiting us through his people. 1 Peter three fifteen. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to every man who asks you the reason of the hope that is in you. Jude 1, 4, There are certain men crept in unawares, therefore... Before of old to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have that set up. Hear the Lord God, we read about in the Old Testament. Here the Lord God is describing redeeming his people. The Lord God will sanctify your hearts. The Lord God is differentiated from the Lord Jesus Christ all through that. All right. So, go with Revelation if you want to follow some passages. (coughs) Listen to this. And the four beasts had each of them six wings, Revelation 4, 8. Their eyes were full within. They rest not day and night, and they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and which is to come. This is speaking of the Lord God Almighty, the Father, As it says in Colossians, it is not speaking of the Lamb. 
Uh, we know 1 uh, Corinthians 8, 6 says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. We have one Lord God. And that is who Revelation is talking about over and over again. And when it's the Lamb, it's clearly the Lamb of God. In Revelation eleven seventeen, it says, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and was to come, because thou hast taken to thee great power and hast reigned. That's a similar reference to him. There's no lamb mentioned. The lamb will be mentioned. Jesus will be mentioned when it's him. But the Lord God Almighty is separate. Revelation 15, 3, And they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are our works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. The song of the Lamb was great and marvelous, all thy works, Lord God Almighty. Now we might be able to say now at Revelation, we're starting to see the Lamb taking on the identity of Lord God. That at the fullness of this age, he's beginning to fulfill what he was made to be as a son. Revelation 16, 7, I heard another... Uh, I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Revelation 18.8 Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. 519 times, Old Testament, Lord God Almighty, Lord God used. 19 times in the New Testament with most of them in the book of Revelation. Why? Because it's a completion of the Lord God bringing his son and becoming Lord God to all things. Revelation 19, 6, And I heard, as it were, a voice of the great multitude, and as a voice of many waters, and the voice of many thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty uh, reigneth. Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, now we have a mention of Jesus, the Lamb, are the temple of it. These people who distinguish between them, uh, don't distinguish between them in the sense of uh, Jesus being the Son of the Lord God Almighty, make an error. There is one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, 5, And there shall be no night therein, neither no candle, neither no light for the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. Revelation 22, 6, And they said unto me, These saints are faithful and true, the Lord God and the true prophets sent his angel to show the servants what must shortly be done. I am personally convinced that the Lord God of the Old Testament, in and through Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law, born of a virgin, came into the world, saved it, then mediates all things in and through his will forevermore, and that all people who have ever walked the earth, he has placed in his son, Jesus, Lord and Savior's hands who now reigns as God's representative to all people. Uh, I want to just read to you quickly, sometimes Jesus is used in the book of Revelation. See if you see a difference. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Revelation 1-2, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1-5, and from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in our own blood. Did you see how he's described? Do you hear a different tenor between hallelujah, Lord God Almighty, 
and Jesus, who's the first witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, the, uh, uh, a, a son of the uh, King David, all of those appellations given to Jesus, Lord God Almighty to God the Father. Revelation 1.9, it says, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And then uh, Revelation 12.7 says, which keep the commandments of God, these are the people who keep the commandments of God and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. We have a differentiation going on there always. And again, it says that in 14.12, keep the commandments of God and have faith of Jesus. And then we come to the word the lamb throughout Revelation. The four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. A reason that is used. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power. God does not receive power. The lamb does. And riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb received of his father who gives all good gifts clear as day in scripture and every creature which is in heaven and earth and below the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that in I heard saying blessed and honor glory and power be unto him that sit on the that sits on the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever always differentiating between Lord God Almighty and the lamb who is our mediator to God uh, we read about before the throne and before the Lamb in 7-9, salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb in Revelation 7-10. I got a dozen more, but the Lord God and the Lamb, definitely separate entities. The Lord God came down embodied in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, made of a woman, born under the law, through the Holy Spirit. The Lamb of God, as described by John the Baptist, overcame sin and death in the grave and then inherited, received, got all things from the Lord God Almighty. Clear as day in Scripture. Now the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb reign, is how it puts it. And the Lamb's book of life, it is a book of continuous entries. And we will never see, in my estimation, or be able to have direct contact with the Lord God Almighty. Because man cannot see him, it says. Only one who can is he who came from him, Jesus Christ. That is why he's our mediator. Uh, Wendy, what, tell me the exact time. 46? Okay, give me just four more minutes, you guys, and we're done. So having discovered and proven the biblical reality that everything of the former age has not only ended with the coming of Christ as promised and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD with the Jews being dispersed or 1.1 million slaughtered by the Roman army, that everything has been shaken in heaven and earth according to God one more time so the only thing that will remain cannot be shaken. That is, religion can be shaken. Men who lead religion, shaken. Brick and mortar, shaken. All of this law, shaken. Rules, shaken, shaken. That former stuff is gone. And how are we as Christians to see the faith, our walk in the world, the aims and purpose of being a follower of Christ? I suggest the following as a start. That all material approaches to brick and mortar religion are not only unimportant, 
but at times serve as a hindrance, serve as a hindrance to the things of the Spirit and should be seen in that light. God now walks in the individual. There's no reason for prophets, temples, tithing, buildings. We meet in a building because we have it. You can meet in a park. You can meet in someone's home. You can meet in a Carl's Jr. You don't need it. No man or woman is in a position to tell another how they must or should believe. God has had the victory. You, I don't think we are in a position today to say you have to believe Trinity. You have to, or you're not a Christian. That day is dead because God is in us and every man knows and will know who God is. The good news is shared as a foregone conclusion in my estimation. So instead of believe and be saved, the message is you have been saved. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus came and what he did, he saved you? Did you know that? That when you die, that you have been saved? Well, then why do I even need to believe? Well, you don't if you don't want to. But if you believe now, you have the benefits of having a relation with him and you have the benefits of living in closer proximity to him because you love him and care about him. If you don't, then you won't. And so that's your choice. But did you know that? And so that great news is like, whoa, a free gift? It, it, really? He did that for me? Yes, he did. Loves you so much as you are, you know? To the heavenly realm by overcoming sin, death, the grave, shield, Satan, and all the other hindrances that once stood between God and men, it's over. And then when we threaten people, and it does work sometimes, you want to go to hell? You know, these guys out on the streets, you want to burn in hell forever? There's a few people who will buy into it, but more and more they're saying, what? You know, come on. What kind of God is going to do that? He creates me. He gives me the attitude I have. He gives me the propensities I have only so that I will burn in hell forever because I don't agree. Come on. You know, it doesn't work. But the, but the new heaven and new earth system does work. That's clearly presented in the Bible. The spirit is primary with the fruits thereof. Christians are known by the fruits that we manifest of this love. That is what makes a Christian. Show me a Mormon who loves selflessly and uh, a Catholic, a Baptist, a Buddhist, an atheist. I'm sorry, I'll say it. Show me someone who loves selflessly. I'll show you somebody who's his. They just don't know it yet. And they're on that path. Show me someone selfish, self-absorbed, arrogant, proud of this world. I'll show you somebody who hasn't received the great news yet. Doctrinal disputes are completely unnecessary. As Jesus has had the victory that God Almighty has allowed for biblical tenets of the faith to be difficult. Why? Because it gives us a chance to love. I said it this morning. I wrote it this morning. Every single interaction we have with another human being is simply an opportunity to love. That's what it is. You run into a full-blown transvestite pedophile, convicted rapist on the street. It's a chance for you to love. You run into an ardent Mormon who is spouting the temple and the prophet. It's a chance for you to love. You run into a wife or a spouse or husband who's driving you nuts to love, a neighbor to love, and to fail in that love, which brings us to our knees. The kingdom of God on earth and the kingdom of God above are one and the same. If you're a member here, absent from the body, you are a present in that kingdom there. That's how it works. That kingdom is not theocratic here. It's not political. It's not based on overwhelming nations, but in thriving with the individual. Warfare is not against flesh and blood. We do not war against other people. Facebook, I've just become a member, is not to war. 
It's to share the great news. And I'm learning that. Afterlife consists of a heavenly kingdom, New Jerusalem, as its capital. The environs outside the New Jerusalem are not described in terms of pain. The environs of the uh, area outside the New Jerusalem are just described as people who commit whoredoms and murders and lies and love this and love that and love this and love that. It does not describe it as they are screaming in pain, they are mournful. I think it is saying they have what they want and that's where they want to be. Because the gates of the New Jerusalem are open day and night, it says, meaning they can always come in. That's the great news. That's the great news. Those who are of the faith by, of Christ that have from the heart chosen to follow him in his life make themselves disciples. And I believe that by suffering to the self, which is what Paul says, we become joint heirs with him. That is what scripture says, something that's ignored by Christians today. Joint heirs with Christ as we live as Christ lived. Joint heirs will have some proximal relationship to God and the Lamb somehow, according to Revelation. And in summary, all people, because of the total victory of Christ, have entered into the spiritual garden of Eden, so to speak. The second Adam and his bride have reinstituted the, the garden of Eden setting again. We might wonder, had Adam and Eve obeyed uh, God, and they had children, and they had children and children and children and children, would all of them believe God? No. But as the federal head, maybe it was only on Adam and Eve to obey. And had their children disobeyed, God would have been, well, they don't have my presence with them. I won't walk with them in the cool of the day. They're going to be out in Moab instead of in downtown Salt Lake, whatever it is. That could have been the state of the Garden of Eden. Because we're in a new Edenic state given to us by the second Adam. And that is what the, the new heavenly uh, kingdom is like. And that is what the new Jerusalem is. You can be part of that kingdom or you can be outside of it. But God has had the victory. No judgment necessary as people are wholly responsible, wholly responsible for their lives before God. The work has been done. All people will reap what they sow. There's no doubt about that. But the payment for alienation to God and the payment for sin and afterlife suffering has been paid. Death, spiritual death, has been overcome through the victory of Christ. Those are his will be his sons and daughters. And that is the sons and daughters of the second Adam and the bride. And they will continue to add to that eternal kingdom forever and ever. Such are known on this earth for their love all the time. That is how they are known. Be a light. Let those opportunities come in love. And in terms of this world, to wrap it up, because this is always comes up with the question with Revelation, the scripture says this earth is never going away. I want, you to, I want to reiterate that to you. The scripture says it's not ever going away. What it does say is that this age will pass. Talking about the age they were in. That's it. But when it comes to this earth, this world, it will never go away. Why? Because Christ's kingdom is perennial. It is forever and ever constantly adding new souls to that heavenly kingdom that was established by him and his bride, the church. It's great news. And from that perspective, uh, from, the, from the book of Revelation, I have gained those perspectives. And I hope they were of some benefit to you in the summary of everything we've covered. Questions, comments. And we have a new commenter, Patrick. <laughs> new. 
<laughs> okay. Um, My phone is not working though. No. Go ahead. Hey, Go Sean. Ahead. Um, I do have something to say, a question, a comment. Do you think that those who... Hold that close to your mouth. Hello? Continue. Awesome. Okay. Do you think that uh, Christ has the complete total victory? <laughs> so if I can tell, I'm laughing because it's not funny, it's just joyful. Um, uh, that he has the complete total victory. Do you think that since everyone's going, it's just who's going in and who's going out of the <laughs> Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, do you think that if somebody says, I don't even want to go in, period, do you think that's a choice? Like they can go to the covered place still? I don't think they can go to the covered place, but I think they can go way, 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 way out in the wilderness, away from the shining, because remember, there's no moon or, or sun there. Yeah. That, that's the Father there in the New Jerusalem yeah. is the light. So the light must diminish as you go into farther nether reaches of, of the heavenly economy. So maybe they can go and dwell in the darkness and they'll like it. Maybe that's what they want. Men they may want it. Men I think that yeah. freedom of choice is imperative here and it's imperative there. Amen. I mean, right. Yeah. And another question is, you quoted a scripture that really means a lot to me. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Yeah. That to me sounds like Jesus, who was, who is, and who is to come. Because it says that um, uh, Jesus promised to return, not the Father, mm -hmm. Jesus promised, so he is to come. Mm -hmm. So that's how me, but you said that's the Father. Well, it's certainly not Jesus, because he wasn't a was, he was born of a woman. But he was the Word before creation. That's God Almighty. So he was, when, we, when you say, I think it's Jesus, I'm just trying to clarify that because of modern worship, they, everyone in the Christian churches who sing that, they're singing it to Jesus. But if you look at it in Scripture, it's always talking about God the Father, and it will say that in Revelation. So it doesn't mean it doesn't apply to who was in Jesus, but the man Jesus has not always been. The man Jesus is all I'm Yeah, the to man say. Jesus. Yeah. But God has certainly always been. So do you think that can still have application to Jesus? Because God dwelt in Jesus and Jesus came back and took the church at that time? Okay, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Sorry. What is most valuable in the human existence? The fact that the Word of God, which became flesh, has always been or the fact that the Word of God was made flesh like us and overcame everything that it did. The Word of God made flesh overcame That's everything. That's right. That's the applicable part to us. That's the important part to us, hmm. is that He became flesh and overcame His flesh on our behalf, sacrificed Himself. That is the value to us. If He had never come down and was just the Word of God, well, thanks. So that is where the relationship comes to man with Jesus, is that what he has done for us. Do you get it? Yeah. Yeah. How do we, how do you think that um, we, because you say son and father and you, you're making a distinction, which I see the distinction. There is a distinction. His only human son. Yeah. God gave his son. There's yes. a distinction there. Jesus prayed to the father, obviously. Yes. But then what about people, and I know we shouldn't go on tradition, but I, I pray to Jesus. I worship him. He's my Lord God and King. Yeah. He's my everything. I know that's just, what people say but that's true to me yeah how do you see that like he's my god i don't see i'm not I, there's no statement because if you're led to do that that's your choice and uh do you believe jesus is god i believe jesus overcame his flesh 
and he inherited all things of the Father. That's what I believe. And he became one with God. And he, they became one, but he's still in Revelation called the Lamb. He is not. He. It says he gives everything over to the Father, and he steps down so that God will be all in all. That's what it says. So I'm just going by what the Scripture yeah. says. I'm citing Scripture here, not my ideas of it. Now people tell me I'm missing things. Yeah. I get that. Maybe I am, but the way I see it is that's what the man Jesus did. God in him. He allowed God. Mm -hmm to do the work through him and then he inherited all things as God's only human son. Because for me, when I'm by myself or whatever, when I'm talking, I, I'm talking to Jesus. Jesus. I think of Jesus because he's my advocate. That's how I relate to God. So I talk to Jesus. Jesus, I love you. Thank yeah. you, Jesus. Bless my mom or whatever. Yeah. You know, I'm always talking to him. That's how I relate to the Father. Have at it, brother. Amen. You're awesome, Sean. Uh, is it? No. Do we just write down what his question is, Michael from Sweden? <clears throat> it is tough. That's why it's debated. How you doing, Sean? Hey, brother, what's up? Great sermon, by the way. Thought Thank it was you. wonderful. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, I thought was really cool. This is just a quick comment. Um, you talked about God being the giver of gifts and things like that, but then the ultimate gift is Christ giving it back to the Father. Oh yeah. So I see a lot of that. Hebrewisms are great, and you will find them a lot in John. So that was perfect. One comment I have about your methodology, though. Yes. And it's this hard distinction between material and spiritual. Huge distinction. Right. But I just don't see that that's how the Old Testament was really about. Right. I mean, you have, if that really wasn't what it was about, you have us who are playing the material and God is off in the spiritual. Yeah. And it's something we can never relate to. And obviously we have Jesus so we can finally do that. But what is God's solution? He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave the nation of Israel there. He said it's the temple. It's the place where heaven and earth can meet. Sure. And the big point about being uh, an heir of God is to not have idol worship anymore. At least okay. that's how I see it, especially reading the Old Testament. Okay. Because idolatry makes uh, it so that you, you who are this uncreated, you know, perfect thing from uh, God, the, uh, the image of God, right, mm -hmm. is worshiping a, a piece of plastic. Right. You know? Right. And so... It's not that the physical is bad, but that the physical needs to be reworked. It's that there has to be a meeting. So I, I don't think that the death of the physical should be the answer, and I don't think that's what he was doing through... So die to the flesh when Paul says that? Does it mean that? Well, no, I think he does, but I also think, you know, the temple is within the flesh. Yeah. And, I mean, there's many points... I mean, marriage, right? Marriage is a... a and another thing, why would he give the us those of desires? The children marry and are given in marriage. But the people who aren't, right. I know what you're trying, I get. What I'm trying to say is what I'm saying. I agree the material's necessary. That is what God has given us. And okay. we have life more abundantly in it. I'm not saying become dematerialists. All I'm saying is that his kingdom is spiritual. And that we relate to God in the spirit that's in our physical temples. Oh, okay. That's all I'm saying. All right, it's so just... So yeah. you're not like saying that the physical is necessarily evil? No, 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 no. Definitely a gift of God, and that's what we've got. I mean, yeah. Okay. But if we do continue to seek him through material religious means, we're missing the point of a purely material nation before. Because the nation of Israel was blessed materially when they obeyed, and they were cursed materially when they disobeyed. Okay. That's not for us. Any, that's not for us. We aren't necessarily blessed materially when we're faithful. 
Sometimes it's harder on us. The Jews couldn't even understand that economy. So that's why my focus is when God says, I'm going to shake everything down. So the only thing that remains is unshakable. That's a spiritual message to me, not a material. Okay. And then one more. One more. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love your questions. I, um, I like talking with you. You're a great guy. I, one day, I really want to run through Matthew 21 through 28 with you. You know, oh Jesus' triumphal entry. One day? We should sit, well, we should just sit down and talk about it sometime. I think that would be awesome. Anyways. You were referencing uh, uh, a lot of what Paul was saying about, you know, uh, like the, the song he uses, uh, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall yeah. confess, and obviously that comes from Isaiah. Yeah. You referenced uh, Paul's reworking of the Shema, yeah. and you're, you're showing the distinction between Lord and God, and I get that, it makes sense, but to me, is Paul is working that together. You talk about Lord God a lot in the Old Testament. Yeah. I think what Paul is saying is, in Isaiah, God doesn't share his power with anyone. Over right. here, Paul's saying, oh, there's actually this guy he's sharing his power with. How does that make sense? He's not sharing his power with. That guy was given all of that power from God. Every time, that's why I read those passages, he received and was given power from God. That's, that's overlooked by uh, people who are making this argument. He always received his power from God. Now, God doesn't receive power. The man Jesus did from God. So I, I just have to say there's something different going on here. That's all. Oh, okay. That's yeah. fair. Thanks, brother. Good comments and questions, you guys. Over to Alicia. Thank you, Nathan. A little directing there. Stage direction. Hello, Sean. Hello, Alicia. Hey, that was remarkable, brother. Thank you. Um, yeah, I would like to discuss about Yes. Of uh, the the first the bride, I mean they had the law, and now we have love. The new commandment is love, and we don't do the old commandment. We have nothing to do with the old commandment. We just have to do with love. That's a new commandment. And it's and hard. We need it. Yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah. But it's not hard for me, but it's maybe hard for other. It's know. hard for your husband. It's yeah, so it is hard for him. <laughs> I love you, Sean. Thank you. Love you too, sister. Huh. Thanks. Hey, you know, you did a remarkable job on Revelation. Oh, thank you, sister. I Praise mean, God. I mean, really, because you know what? I tell you, I was scared of it. I love that you said you were honest enough to say, I am too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you were mourning but with you, me. You really, you really, you really, you really did a great job on Praise it. Praise God. Thank, Thank you. you. Wendy, do we have the comment from Michael in Sweden? Hold on. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, Gaylene. Oh, I want to ask you a question. I wasn't here when you did the book of Revelation, chapter 13. That chapter kind of frightens me because what's going on in YouTube, all these sayings about the mark of the beast and the new world order and the antichrist is supposed to come in this world nowadays too yeah you say maybe it happened years back but there are people believers out there that said it's going to come and there's supposed to be a rapture that comes and takes yeah. us up yeah i'm just hoping maybe i can get somebody could give me a copy of what you sit on your in chapter 13. Galen, okay. i think chapter 13 took us 10 weeks oh no <laughs> maybe more but it's all online and so here's a, here's a shameless plug. Go to www.campuschurch.tv, look at the archives, scroll down Revelation, mm -hmm. 
chapter 13. And, and if you listen to those, Galen, you'll hear some really great arguments for how the mark of the beast and, and all the other, the Antichrist and all of that stuff was going on in that day 2,000 years ago as proven by non-Christian historians. That, yeah. that, they were, that Rome okay. was demanding a mark and that Nero's name fix out to be the different uh, antichrist and the worshiping of him and all that stuff. Chapter 13, Campus Church. Yeah, I'm just not too sure. Maybe it'll happen I know. again. It's I hope pray it don't. It's comforting to believe it's happening now and maybe it is in a spiritual sense. I, I say to my kids sometimes, you know, to me, I think the whole thing's gonna end up dead the way we're headed. I can't believe there won't be an end to this. It's so scary. But it doesn't answer the question was Jesus right, and was there an end then? I believe this, that uh, Jesus will, you know, they said that the end of the world is supposed to happen. It won't end. The earth will, the top part of the earth will just change so the new Jerusalem can come down. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. All right. Michael in Sweden. Um, oh. Who is it? Oh, Nathan? Wrapping it up, kids. Hi, so I just had a question about the New Jerusalem and how outside the walls there's still going to be the dogs and the murderers. Yeah. How can people commit murder in the next Jerusalem, or if it's a spiritual place? Nathan, it's a fantastic question because it actually says there, and those who want to commit abomination cannot come in, or who do commit abomination cannot come in. So there actually seems to be some way to, outside of the New Jerusalem, commit sin. And there then seems okay. to be. Okay, well, uh, something to think about some more. The other thing I had was Revelations 18, the fall of Babylon. I mean, did that really happen yeah. already? Babylon, in the interpretation uh, that we give, was Jerusalem, Israel, she had ridden on the back of Rome. She had become the whore of Babylon. They united against the church. And, and she was the most destitute, depraved, be, not she, it was the most destitute, depraved being. And that's proven by their behaviors and actions. Babylon versus the bride was, is the uh, contrast that is used throughout the book. But again, that's gonna take a whole study on your part to hear what we were saying. Okay. Thank you. All right. Is that it? No. Quickly. Robert um, yeah, some there's been times that um, I've struggled about, I guess, doing something that I know I'm supposed to do and struggling whether I should do it or not. And then we need to be careful with this. Well, let me just say this. Uh, you know, the, the, the scholars of Christ's day thought that their financial blessings were because they were right. And um, I was just going to say that uh, there's been times when I've struggled about doing what is right. I, I believe I already know what's right, but doing it I might have a struggle with, but and yet doing it and then uh, God seeming to bless me financially after I do it. I can't say anything to that at all. Uh, God does what he's going to do. So, people think that uh, Chick-fil-A is financially blessed because they're not open on Sunday. I don't know. 
Uh, In-N-Out Burger is just as financially blessed. They put John 316 on the bottom of their cup and they're open on Sunday. I don't know. Okay, Michael just said, wanted to say thank you. 89 links later, we are done. Yes. And I personally want to say thank you for doing this for two years. Well, it's because of you, Wendy. <laughs> God for Wendy. 89, not 100. I have 100 sermons. I think, I think Michael is touching the Swedish weed again. Just kidding. Let's pray, you guys, and get out of here. Oh, and let me just remind you, next week, please join us. Uh, wherever you are out there, if you're in Utah, come join us. Free hot dogs, free fellowship, and a water baptism. We just throw that into boot. Lord, uh, pray for the people on this uh, list. But before we do that, we just thank you for, I thank you personally, humbly, uh, before my friends and, and brothers and sisters for this book of Revelation. I apologize for my obstinance for being a doubting Thomas and not even believing it was inspired when we started off. And I learned that way. I, I resist at first until I'm proven otherwise. And I'm sorry I'm not more of a man of faith in some of these things. So I publicly uh, apologize for my resistance. Uh, but I'm grateful, so grateful for what you have shown me and hopefully what you've been able to share with others and the information herein. And we pray that it will keep us humble before you and loving toward you and others and not serve in any other way, shape, or fashion but that it will also give us liberty and freedom to understand the great news that is revealed at the end of this book after the long and arduous suffering that we read for the first 20 chapters. We pray for Annette, who's in her last days of cancer. We pray that they will have peace and comfort for her family who's hurting and hurting each other. We pray for Robert and his healing from kidney, lung, and lymphoma cancer. We pray for Diana, hips and shoulders and knees that you'll help them and help her and bring her peace. Liz, continued strength in her knee, from her knee surgery. Diane, who has kidney stones and other issues. Gracie, our cancer survivor child, she awaits scans. Her chemo's finished, but we, can, we pray that she is in complete remission and has had the, the victory. We pray for Brandy, faith in the Lord, mercy and grace. We pray for uh, my friend's husband in bad shape going downhill, whoever that might be. We pray for Patrick's mom, Suzanne Layerly, and her health. We pray for my brother and wife in Germany now till August 12th for protection over them. We pray for Myrna and Gran. Our sister Myrna had a hip replacement, and we, she's in great pain. And we pray that you will heal her, Lord, and you will give her mobility, and she'll overcome the difficulty she's having with this operation. And we pray for our sister Barbara, who's not with us for the, one of the first times in 89 weeks today. She's not with us because her husband, Scott, last week died suddenly from a massive stroke. And we pray that you will be with Barbara and help her to manage her affairs and get things in order and be able to handle the passing of her long, long, long time husband, Scott. Uh, all of us, we lift up. We seek to now leave this building. We leave the book of Revelation and what it gave to us in terms of insights. We want to retain the good and the things that are true, and move forward into our walk. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.